This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So to begin, uh, Dr. Richard Spinrad was sworn in on June 22nd, 2021 as the Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere and as the 11th NOAA Administrator. Dr. Spinrad is responsible for the strategic direction and oversight of the agency and its 12,000 employees. Previously, Dr. Spinrad served as Professor of Oceanography and Vice President uh, for Research at Oregon State University, go Beavers. And Dr. Spinrad also served as NOAA's Chief of Scientists under President Barack Obama from 2014 to 16. Uh, while at NOAA, Dr. Spenred co-led the White House Committee for the Development of the Nation's First Set of Ocean Research Priorities and oversaw the revamping of NOAA's research enterprise, including the development of the agency's scientific integrity policy. Throughout his career, Dr. Spinrad has held leadership positions as U.S. Office of Naval Research and Oceanographer of the Navy, faculty appointments at Oregon State University, the U.S. Naval Academy, and George Mason University, and served as Executive Director at the Consortium for Oceanographic Research and Education. Um, he also developed the NOAA National Ocean Science Bowl for high school students, which I think is cool. My daughter participated in that. And so given his diverse service leadership and accolades, it's clear that Dr. Spinred has his finger on the pulse of the ocean. So we're, we're glad to have him with us. Please take it away. Thank you, Professor Siemens. And let me also uh, add my thanks to uh, all of the uh, attendees, as well as the Pacific Ocean Forum, and of course, Scripps Institution of Oceanography in UC San Diego, for inviting me here today. Uh, I want to thank the Institute of the Americas for convening this forum. Margaret Leinen and I had a chance to talk about this forum just a few weeks ago, and I was already excited about the opportunity. And in the course of talking with Margaret, a good friend, uh, someone with incidentally whom I worked on that uh, first set of ocean research priorities, that was when Margaret was at NSF. And so we go back a ways and have had a chance to talk about many of the issues that I'll address here uh, in a very broad context. And the timing on this forum is particularly good. And I'm sorry I couldn't be in La Jolla with all of you for this. Uh, I think uh, uh, the virtual format is great, uh, but there's certainly something to be said for being able to mix it up in person. I look forward to following up with many of you in person down the line. I was recently in Palau for the Our Oceans Conference, and I will invoke some of the things that were said there and some of the impressions I had uh, in the broad context of the messages that I want to share with you. I've also got to say that uh, here at NOAA, we have always had a very strong relationship with our colleagues at the State Department. So I'm particularly excited and pleased and honored to be joined by Maxine Burkett, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Oceans, Fisheries, and Polar Affairs at State. Let me start first with an overarching perspective. Climate change impacts are being felt worldwide. It's real. The dialogue is fundamentally different now than it was before. As you may have uh, inferred from uh, Bryce's introduction of me, uh, I've had the opportunity to work in the policy arena for quite some time here in DC. And I was working in the Obama administration and then left at the end of the Obama administration, went back to Oregon, where I was uh, basically disconnected from a lot of the dialogue. I spent an awful lot of my time when I was the chief scientist, Noah, up on the hill addressing the issue of attribution. And I'll say a little bit more about this in a minute. But back then, four or five, six years ago, what we found was that 
a lot of the debate, the polarizing debate on climate change was about whose fault was it? Where do we point fingers? Who's responsible? And the debate is changing. Uh, I, can, I can use as an example discussion I had with uh, a Republican congressman just uh, a week ago from the middle of the country, a fifth generation farmer uh, who comes from a very red district. And he said to me that what he really wants to know, first of all, he's observed a fundamental change in the agricultural conditions uh, on his own family's farm. And the question now, and this is characteristic of what I hear from a lot of people on the Hill and elsewhere is, what do we do about it? Not so much whose fault is it, or can we call this climate change, but what do we do about it? And it's important in the context of this particular forum to recognize that these impacts are being experienced differently in every region of the world. Yet it's, so it's a, a, a global problem with global solutions, but with very local impacts. And to understand climate change, we've got to look at the entire earth system. To do so requires a lot of collaboration. So let me give you a few examples, of, if I can, of the kinds of products and services that are gonna be critical to developing those solutions. What you see on the screen is a cover page and a visual depiction of the issues associated with sea level rise. So NOAA recently released a sea level rise technical report that revealed, among other things, that sea level along the US coastline is projected to rise on average 10 to 12 inches in the next 30 years. And there's a couple of important points. First of all, we've been putting out sea level rise data and information for quite some time, but now the skill, the accuracy, 10 to 12 inches in the next 30 years is so good that I've, I've told people you can basically take that to the bank. It's accurate, it's actionable, it's reliable. That's one point. The other is that there's a lot of emphasis on the issues of mitigation. Let's get to net zero, let's slash our emissions, let's decarbonize uh, so much of our economy. And that's important to do. We need to recognize that even if we're to drastically slash our greenhouse gas emissions, we're still going to be faced with this flywheel, the momentum of climate change. And so for nations with Pacific coastlines, um, we see that sea level rise is a threat, but it's also a threat multiplier, which is why I was eager to talk about in this particular forum. In the United States, we appear to be in an elevated period of sea level rise along the West Coast, and the Western Pacific Ocean has been increasing at a rate two to three times the global average, resulting in almost uh, 30 centimeters of net rise since 1990. Sea level rise is already having a major impact on society, economies, ecosystems, and increased vulnerability to things like tropical cyclones, storm surge, and coastal flooding. Another perspective that we see is in the way climate change is impacting ocean ecosystems across the globe, threatening economies and communities. So as the ocean absorbs more heat and carbon dioxide, there will be more ocean acidification events. It's a major threat for the US shellfish industry. Again, as you heard from my introduction, I spent a lot of time uh, up at Oregon State University where we, uh, have a very active shellfish aquaculture community. Uh, that happens to be one of the largest segments of marine aquaculture in the US. There are several thousand small farms nationwide harvesting over $600 million worth of sustainable shellfish while providing tens of thousands of jobs in rural coastal communities. And back in 2005, up in the Pacific Northwest, oyster hatcheries began declining at an alarming rate. Uh, it was, um, 
very uh, surprising to many of these uh, hatcheries. Initially, they suspected it was a temperature effect. Then they suspected it might be something like the viral impact that was seen in Chesapeake Bay. There were severe economic impacts, and it really challenged a way of life that had been held by shellfish growers in that part of the country for over 130 years. About three years later, oyster losses in the largest oyster hatchery on the West Coast reached 80%. A couple of years after that, NOAA scientists working with colleagues from universities around the world determined that what was called corrosive water by the press was killing the oyster larvae. At the same time, we see severe coral bleaching. It's become more extensive, frequent, more intense, and is manifested by that very devastating uh, global coral bleaching event from 2014 to 2017 which incidentally is now considered the longest, most widespread and most damaging coral bleaching event on record. We saw, or I should say, we've been seeing mass bleaching events around the globe, often lasting many months. They're becoming a near annual event and they're impacting coral reefs that have never been bleached before. Utilizing some domestic and international partnerships, we can make conservation research and policy even more inclusive to be an important tool to help us address this and it's going to be especially important if we can ensure representation across cultures, countries, stakeholders, especially, I would say, in the Pacific. This is a planetary issue with implications globally, regionally, and locally, and requiring a really highly integrated approach to solution. So NOAA is dedicated to the Earth system approach, and part of that includes providing the observing capacity needed to detect and respond to climate change in our oceans and along our coasts. NOAA's systems of ocean observations rely on providing those regionally tailored data and observations that are integrated into a national system. What you're seeing here, incidentally, is some very fresh imagery. This is the satellite, the geostationary operational environmental satellite goes 18. We just launched this satellite on March 1st. It's not yet operational, so you're getting a little bit of a sneak preview on the kinds of data. We call this Earth in high resolution. Uh, these data will be provided to uh, publicly to uh, a range of users, uh, including weather forecasters, including uh, resource managers. And the reason I pulled this one up is because GOES 18, as it's called right now, uh, is going to be our West Coast uh, GOES, which will, the position will change a little bit um, before it goes operational, but you get a sense of uh, its coverage of the whole Pacific. And as the largest of our world's oceans, the, the Pacific is obviously significantly impacted by global forcing, including basin-wide climate variability from events and phenomena such as the El Nino Southern Oscillation and the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. I should add, conditions in the Arctic are rapidly changing, requiring research to understand sea ice processes and prediction, ecosystem changes and relevant long-term atmospheric observations, and re responses to shifts in things like the polar vortex that create extreme weather conditions in the whole of the Northern Hemisphere. Also, along the U.S. West Coast, we've seen impacts from changes and shifts in the abundance and distribution of marine species on the function of the California current system and the 
coastal communities that depend on it. For example, the repeated marine heat waves in the Pacific have led to shifting distributions of large whales in response to oceanographic conditions and prey availability. That results in increasing entanglements with pot fishing gear and record harmful algal blooms are also resulting in the closures of various crab and shellfish fisheries. Species are shifting into new areas and ecosystems and habitats are being altered by climate-driven ecological changes. For example, more than 90% of North Central California kelp forests have been lost to a cascading series of ecological events triggered by a marine heat wave. These kinds of changes to ecosystem functioning could become more common across the Pacific as climate change progresses. Species distributions are also expanding as environmental barriers are removed due to extreme events. The 2019 heat wave resulted in loss of sea ice and subsequent erosion of the Bering Sea bottom cold pool, leading to a 1,000 kilometer expansion of some fishery stocks in the Bering Sea and increased movement of cross boundary stocks in and out of the US-Russian EEZ boundary. There are some people who are saying that Alaskan Pollock are now Russian Pollock. Uh, the interesting thing to think about in the context of these shifting, the shifting biogeography is if as, as these events happen in the ocean, uh, it's a very limited group that is sensitized to it and aware of it. Imagine if we started seeing similar sorts of shifts to the, what we call the charismatic megafauna associated with our national parks. If all of the grizzly bears, elk and wolves in Yellowstone National Park uh, suddenly moved out of Yellowstone Park off to some other area, it would beg the question of what are we doing about attention to protecting those vital species? Same issue is happening in the oceans. We need the same attention. We need the same clarion call, if you will, for action to these. These impacts and the consequences as a result have become focal points for international dialogue at the highest level. And what you see here is a picture taken at COP26. This was the uh, climate conference in Glasgow back in November. Uh, I had the honor of serving as a moderator to the extent anybody can moderate this particular panel. It's a little hard to see, but I will share with you that what you see there, I'm the fellow, the second from the left, uh, the fellow on the far left on the panel was former President Barack Obama. Um, next to me on the other side is Prime Minister of Fiji, Frank Bainimarama. Next to him is the Minister of Climate Resilience and Environment of Grenada, Simon Steele. And next to him is the Climate Envoy from our, the Marshall Islands, Kathy Gentil Kitchener. And as Fijian Prime Minister Bainimarama said at COP26, quote, he said, our global canoe is headed for storms and the seawater could sink us. Uh, I will share with you that it was very disturbing and compelling to listen to Prime Minister Bainimarama talk about the truly existential threat that his nation Fiji faces right now. And, and to hear his expression of deep and abiding concern for his constituents, his populace, but also his concern on support and collaboration with the rest of the world. We heard a lot of messages coming out of COP26. And also I should add in Palau at the recent Our Oceans Conference, uh, 
And the, the messages were on preparedness and adaptation as key components of our climate response. And let me emphasize that I am very impressed and obviously compelled, like compelled enough to come out of retirement to take this position at NOAA by this administration's efforts to address the issues of climate change. But I also feel that so much attention has been put into the issues of mitigation, decarbonizing, using renewable uh, energy, uh, that I have been particularly vocal on the issues of uh, adaptation and resilience. Uh, we can do both, uh, but uh, as I said earlier, we need to face the issues that are at hand right now, like ocean acidification and sea level rise. And I was delighted at COP26 that uh, the issue of adaptation was expressed strongly and uh, very eloquently, I think. So the point here, of course, is we've got to work together in order to expand the global adaptation and mitigation efforts. And there are a number of tools and opportunities that we have to exploit. I am actually optimistic. I, I would say realistic with respect to our ability to do that. So what are those tools? What are those capabilities? Well, obviously marine protected areas are an essential nature-based tool for fighting climate change, protecting biodiversity, maintaining healthy populations of wildlife, flora and fauna, and sustaining economies and local communities. MPA programs are increasingly addressing climate conditions through management actions to reduce cumulative impacts, implement climate-informed restoration and assess boundaries to include areas important for mitigation, adaptation and resilience. We're not just starting from scratch. We have a solid foundation of existing work that we can continue to strengthen. And one of the mainstays of the Biden-Harris administration is building out those capabilities. Since I've been on the job, and I've been on the job now just under uh, one year, we've already had dedications of a new sanctuary in Wisconsin and a new National Estuary Research Reserve, both different flavors of marine protected areas. Uh, that Estuary Research Reserve was in Connecticut. We just dedicated that uh, a few weeks ago. I should add also that efforts such as the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development offer us a robust, enduring framework around which we can build this shared understanding of and consensus on ocean and climate solutions. The International Partnership on MPAs, Biodiversity and Climate Change is another initiative working to advance our collective knowledge base and enable global leaders to make informed decisions. This alliance of government agencies and organizations aims to support decision makers in implementing MPA networks as nature-based solutions for, as I mentioned earlier, biodiversity conservation and climate change mitigation, adaptation and resilience. A big part of NOAA's mandate is to provide products and services that help us understand how climate change is affecting us both at home and around the world, what I call actionable environmental intelligence. And we take this obligation very seriously. Just this spring, for example, our NOAA ship Rainier, shown in the lower right on this slide, started a multidisciplinary expedition to Guam and the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands to study our coral reef ecosystems. This effort is gonna ensure up-to-date information and data on our ocean ecosystems, makes it into the hands of managers and local communities for critical management decisions. You also see in this slide, an image of the Mauna Loa Observatory Tip of the hat, of course, to our colleagues at Scripps. This laboratory was started by Dr. Keeling, Scripps, many decades back. 
on the island of Hawaii, and it has been continuously monitoring and collecting atmospheric data since the 1950s. It is iconic in the sense that when people talk about what's happening in carbon di to, uh, to the atmosphere with regard to carbon dioxide concentrations, they are usually alluding to the Keeling curve, which is derived from this particular lab. And unfortunately, I'll share with you that NOAA just reported a new record high weekly average level of CO2 last month. Our joint efforts with international counterparts on the Tropical Pacific Ocean Observing System, or TPOS, support better understanding and prediction of things like the El Nino Southern Oscillation, ENSO, which influences temperature and precipitation across the globe. Uh, I just shared our outlook for the hurricane season for the Atlantic, and I got a number of questions about the influences of, in this case, La Nina. So obviously, first of all, people are aware. Second of all, we're getting them the information they need. TPOS actually allows us to gain a greater understanding of the tropical Pacific and better address the uncertainty of things like climate variability and provide improved predictions and longer forecast times. So collaboration with domestic and international partners runs central to all of our work. But to what end? What, what do we need to do? My feeling as administrator is that we need to have as a goal to build a climate ready nation by 2030. A climate ready nation, think of it as a thriving nation whose prosperity, health, safety, and continued growth benefit from and depend on a shared understanding of and collective action to address the impacts of climate change. Notice I use the word prosperity. You don't typically hear that term in the context of dealing with climate change. So with our partners around the world, we can ensure that other nations become climate ready as well. This truly is an opportunity for more scientific collaboration through the kinds of observations I alluded to, development of predictive models and forecasts, development of new scientific instrumentation and investments. The Argo float array is just one classic example. Uh, we couldn't have done it without the work from our colleagues at Scripps. That has been one of the most influential observational capabilities that has shown us so much about where's the heat going in the oceans. And how is the heat transported? And what are the, how are the dynamics affected by climate change? I'll add that part of the adaptation process will include the emergence of added value climate service providers that build on public services to build the climate services economy. I happen to believe that that particular commercial climate services enterprise is a burgeoning uh, economic sector with potential market value in the neighborhood of about 100 billion dollars. So we've been undertaking a major effort at NOAA to talk with those startups, those emerging companies, those entrepreneurs and innovators who are thinking about developing those value-added climate services and ensuring that all of these value-added products that are accessible to all governments in the Pacific, rich or poor, should be an important goal. And I've got to add, co-developed with those peoples, those cultures, those governments as well, taking advantage of things like indigenous knowledge. So while the task at hand may seem daunting, if we get it right, we'll be looking at a lot of new opportunities for economic development and global cooperation and being in a much better place as a climate ready globe. Collaboration and the development of new economic sectors begins with co-development and co-ideation. 
Together, we can take significant steps to address the threats that I've outlined today. Adaptation to sea level rise, managing fish stocks, supporting climate ready nations around the world, and continuing to mitigate aggressively climate change through traditional and emerging means. I don't wanna sound Pollyannish, but I really am ultimately a climate optimist. Individually, we have so many good ideas, effective initiatives and programs and policy proposals. Think what we might be able to achieve collectively if we all pull more in the same direction. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Spinrad. Um, that was great. So uh, next up, we have Professor Maxine Burkett. Uh, Professor Burkett is Deputy Assistant for Oceans, Fisheries, and Polar Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. Professor Burkett received her B.A. from Williams College and her J.D. from Berkeley Law at the University of California. Following her education, she served as a law clerk for the Honorable Susan Ilston's, Ilston of the U.S. District Court, a Northern District of California. She also has worked as a professor of law at the University of Hawaii's William S. Richardson School of Law and Colorado Law, where she has taught climate law and ocean and coastal law. Professor Burkett has also served as an expert senior advisor to the Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, where she focused on um, climate-related mitigation, climate security, bilateral relationships with island nations, and indigenous peoples' engagement. She spent time in a variety of state and federal committees, including the Federal Advisory Committee for the Sustained National Climate Assessment and the Ind Independent Advisory Committee on Applied Climate Assessments. Collectively, her education, leadership, and in international policy and law and academic teachings place her at the forefront of climate and ocean governance. So uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Professor Burkett. Thank you for having me. Good morning, everybody. Uh, or good afternoon, uh, depending on your time zone, and aloha from Honolulu, which is where I am based currently. So this conversation is particularly um, uh, sort of relevant <laughs> and exciting to me, given the Pacific focus. Um, so thanks, and, and it's a pleasure to be here with, with friends and neighbors uh, in the Pacific. Uh, as we've heard, uh, our ocean is facing many challenges at this critical moment for our planet. And as Deputy Assistant Secretary, of State for Oceans, Fisheries, and Polar Affairs, I can say confidently that our Bureau at the State Department is committed to collaborating with the global community and finding solutions to these challenges. It's clear that the climate crisis is also an ocean crisis, and none experiences reality so acutely as coastal communities and island states, including those with us today. Impacts ranging from ocean warming to sea level rise to ocean acidification, as we've heard, are placing the ocean resources we rely on and the coastlines we call home at, at incredibly great risk. And conserving the ocean is our shared responsibility. Strengthening international cooperation will be critical and critical to ensuring that every community is equipped with the tools needed to adapt to a changing world. The United States is committed to supporting our partners in the Pacific as we work together to tackle the climate crisis and its effects on our ocean. So today I'm pleased to highlight some of the ways the United States is working to address issues at the ocean climate nexus throughout the Pacific. Dr. Spinrad just gave an excellent, chilling, though ultimately optimistic overview of how climate change is manifesting in the Pacific and some of our approaches, as well as NOAA's efforts to understand how climate and the ocean are linked to the broader Earth system. I'll focus on our efforts to respond to these changes. As our climate changes, our ocean does too. These are inextricably connected systems. The ocean absorbs about 25% of greenhouse gas emissions and more than 90% of excess heat in the atmosphere. We're clearly seeing the effects of that change on ocean conditions and marine life. 
And some of the most pressing ways in which this is playing out in our region include changes in our regional fisheries and increasing threats from uh, sea level rise. And importantly, we know that regions and communities will not all experience ocean climate impacts in the same way. Some places face more rapid and extreme changes than others. Moreover, not all communities have the same capacity to adapt. Frontline and low-income communities in particular face more barriers in adapting to a changing ocean. So we know we have to release emissions and we know that some of these impacts will really test our ability to adapt. So the challenge before us is this, ensuring that all communities have the resources required to adapt to the unique conditions they face as our ocean changes. In order to meet this goal, it's vital to harness hemispheric co cooperation in order to ensure that these needs are met throughout the Americas. And from fisheries to illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing to ocean climate research uh, and care for the most vulnerable, we must be concerned and committed. For fisheries, as the ocean becomes warmer, the habitat ranges of economically and ecologically valuable species are changing again, as we've heard. The conditions preferred by highly migratory species, such as tuna, may move across management boundaries, impacting their ability to availability to different countries and affecting how we sustainably manage these fisheries. Future warming may result in reduced productivity and species availability for some large and small scale fisheries within the EEZs or exclusive economic zones of several Pacific nations by the mid 21st century. Changes in the climate system are also projected to impact the upwelling system that supports many of the abundant fisheries of the Eastern Pacific. Higher carbon dioxide levels also cause ocean acidification, which will harm not just species, but entire food webs. We must take action to protect these fisheries and fishing communities, not only to limit the amount of warming and acidification they will experience, but also to prepare them to be resilient in the face of coming change. As the largest single country market for fish and fish products, the third largest wild seafood producer, and the fifth largest exporter of fish and fish products, the United States has a big stake in conserving our Pacific fisheries. We participate in several international organizations and we're party to treaties in the Pacific region that govern the conservation and management of highly migratory species. In the Pacific region, these include the treaties establishing the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission, the WCPFC, and the Inter-American Tropical Tuna Commission, the IATTC. The United States is also party to a treaty related to the North Pacific albacore tuna with Canada. As a party to these treaties, we contribute to efforts to assess the status of tuna, billfish, and shark stocks in the Eastern Pacific Ocean. These assessments help determine appropriate catch limits and other measures to prevent overexploitation of these stocks. We play a similar role as a member of the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission. In both of these regional fisheries management organizations, the United States is a coastal state with, most, with both domestic and distant water fishing interests. The International Scientific Committee for Tuna and Tuna-like Species in the Northern Pacific Ocean, ISC, also conducts stock assessments for some species managed by the IATTC and the WCPFC, including Pacific bluefin tuna and albacore tunas. In order to succeed in these efforts to maintain sustainable healthy fisheries throughout the Pacific, it's vital that all member states contribute to the success of the RFMOs by fully implementing and adhering to the RFMOs measures and spend transparently providing data about their catches. Now, IUU fishing, legal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, this represents a compounding stress on Pacific fisheries that are already being taxed by climate change. This is a challenge we have tools and expertise to combat though, right? and we can do that right now. By halting bad actors and destructive practices today, we can reduce the stress these fisheries face in a warmer future.
we know how important it is to work with regional partners to achieve these goals. And I'll give you some examples. In Panama, the State Department has partnered with Marviva to build institutional capacity and good governance to counter IUU fishing. This includes broadening public engagement on the issue and educating local audiences on the importance of fishing regulations and how IUU fishing affects real people. In Ecuador, the State Department supports several Coast Guard capacity building initiatives and equipment repairs and is providing sensors and communication equipment to the Ecuadorian Navy to expand maritime domain awareness and help counter IUU fishing. USAID and NOAA are providing technical support to Peru, Ecuador, and Colombia for dockside inspection, information sharing, and coordination to address IE fishing and implementation of international agreements such as the Port States Measures Agreement. Chile is one of the recipients of a State Department-funded regional grant that is working to assess law enforcement and legislative approaches to counter IE fishing in South America, along with Argentina, Ecuador, and Uruguay. But another valuable tool in our efforts to safeguard and replenish fish stocks are those well-managed marine protected areas mentioned earlier. We can help fish stocks and other species adapt to climate change by creating connected, sustainably management, managed uh, corridors where wildlife can migrate, expand their ranges, and acclimate to changing water temperatures. MPAs also provide that invaluable ecosystem service, such as the carbon sequestration and coastal protection and resilience mentioned earlier. There are engines for the blue economy that support fishing, tourism, and recreation. Conservation of these natural spaces is key to both adapting to and mitigating climate change and its effects on the ocean. To maintain MPAs and their benefits, uh, we need to work together to find incentives that support the durability of those efforts, including new management measures and sustainable finance innovations. These will help countries weather hard times without unraveling years of hard work to protect marine areas. And in this regard, I'd like to, to take more than a moment to applaud uh, Panama, Costa Rica, Colombia, and Ecuador on their work to secure, protect, and conserve the Eastern Tropical Pacific Marine Corridor, CMAR. As the CMAR Secretariat and host of the 2023 Our Ocean Conference, Panama will be able to showcase CMAR as a stellar example of how countries can partner to protect migratory marine species and our ocean. Ecuador's approval of a new Galapagos Marine Reserve in January of 2021 and plans for a blue bond are another example for, uh, for countries to follow. We also commend Chile's leadership on ocean conservation, including as the host of the 2015 Our Ocean Conference and the effort to make COP25 the first blue COP focused on ocean issues. While we work to achieve 30 by 30 at home, we're also encouraging other countries to take steps to conserve their own ocean resources. At our ocean conference in Palau, we announced a new global ocean conservation pledge to commit to conserve, protect, or restore at least 30% of waters under national jurisdictions by 2030. And we urged all coastal countries to join this pledge. We're also working with partners globally to finalize an ambitious and effective agreement for the conservation and sustainable use of high seas biodiversity that would create for the first time a coordinated and cross-sectoral approach to establishing high seas marine protected areas and help us achieve our goal of conserving 30% of the global ocean by 2030. Now, just as warming temperatures will change our ocean habitats, rising seas are changing life on the coast. Annual sea level has been rising about three millimeters per year for the past 10 years. As sea levels rise, coastal areas and islands are inundated, shoreline erosion intensifies and quickens, and important ecosystems such as wetlands and mangroves, which are key carbon sinks as well, are threatened. 
The UN estimates that nearly 40% of our global population resides in coastal areas. And we're committed to supporting our neighbors and allies with the technical knowledge needed to monitor and model sea level rise. Our environmental satellites, buoys, and data stations, supported by our efforts, uh, by the efforts of our colleagues at NOAA, monitor sea level rise and ocean conditions in real time. These systems provide the data needed to build models that can predict where and how quickly sea level rise will occur in the future. Understanding how quickly sea levels are rising allows communities, businesses, and governments to make decisions that help them stay safe and plan for the future. Additionally, those technologies that model sea level rise and storm surge dynamics can better inform the placement and protection of critical infrastructure to protect vulnerable communities. Building capacity through sharing expert knowledge and data to achieve these goals with our Pacific neighbors is a critical piece of resilience. And to address these needs, the Biden administration's PREPARE initiative seeks to help more than 500 million people in developing countries adapt to and manage the impacts of climate change. PREPARE, jointly coordinated by the State Department and USAID, will help get early warning and climate information into the hands of those who need it, integrate support adaptation in key sectors, and improve access to and, and mobilize finance for adaptation. But ultimately, to address the changes to the ocean, we must tackle the root causes of climate change, which carbon emissions. Ocean-based climate solutions have the potential to provide up to 20% of the emissions reductions needed to keep the 1.5 degree goal within reach. These solutions include protecting and restoring coastal ecosystems that store carbon, expanding offshore renewable energy, and decarbonizing the shipping sector. This is truly a global challenge and requires global cooperation and collaboration. We're committed to tackling the climate crisis head on and working with our partners throughout the Pacific region to help them implement ocean-based climate solution. For example, this administration has a goal to deploy at least 30 gigawatts of renewable offshore wind energy by 2030. And again, at the, our ocean conference in Palau, we announced technical assistance subject to domestic procedures and other requirements to help other countries develop offshore wind resources to advance climate goals and create good jobs. We're also taking steps to decarbonize the global shipping sector, which currently has an emissions trajectory that is incompatible with the goals of the Paris Agreement. At COP26, for example, uh, the US launched the de Declaration on Zero Emissions Shipping by 2050 with Denmark and the Marshall Islands. And we worked with the UK on the Clydebank Declaration to establish green shipping corridors. We're encouraged to be joined in these efforts by many of our Pacific neighbors, and we welcome more. But as I said earlier, these challenges will not affect all people, communities, and countries in the same way. Indigenous communities, communities of color, and low-income communities are far more vulnerable to these changes. So as we consider how we will solve new problems, we need to be thinking about solutions in new ways as well. None of this is easy, but uh, certainly climate change isn't either. We know what we need to do to protect our ocean and the marine resources we rely on, and now's the time to implement these actions. Our actions must be nimble, coordinated, just, and inclusive of our most vulnerable communities. And working collaboratively, we can build a future that does not leave our most vulnerable communities behind. I'll pause there and look forward to our discussion during the Q&A. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Professor Burkett. Um, so uh, wonderful. Great. Thanks for, for both of those talks. It's, um, uh, collectively, they, they perfectly set the stage for um, for our discussion. So I'll remind uh, those in attendance in the audience, uh, you should feel free to add questions into the Q&A and provided we have the time, we'll, we'll get around to those. In the meantime, I've got a set of questions that I would like to 
throw at both of you and, and um, get your responses in, in sort of a roundtable type of a, of a discussion. Uh, so uh, to begin, with climate change being one of the biggest concerns for nations, including those with coastlines along the Pacific Ocean, what are some of the challenges and opportunities for building consensus around climate change, in particular responses to climate change? There, there are a number of things that we can be thinking about in terms of of responses and some of those challenges uh, and, and opportunities. I think it's important to recognize that uh, as we see sort of the diversity of impacts that are happening across the globe, that uh, similarly, there's going to be a diversity of responses to those impacts as there should be. Um, and so we know that there's sort of no one size fits all solution to the climate crisis and the emphasis should be on issues like ambition and action. Um, and collaboration with other countries is of course, first and foremost for our uh, our administration and certainly us, our work at the State Department, both in the climate and ocean context. We're putting cli the climate crisis at the center of our foreign policy and national security, as we were instructed by President Biden to do uh, in his very first week in office. And we're continuing that dialogue with other countries. Uh, I would suggest that we could look to a couple of examples, one in the rear view and one coming up just next week. Um, if we look at COP27 in, in November, there was an opportunity there uh, uh, and that we continue to be able to take advantage of, which is uh, the consensus around climate change and the momentum that was built there in Glasgow, which saw the first ever global consensus on phasing down uh, coal and fossil fuel subsidies. And we can continue the dialogue with other countries and build upon previous successes in varied fora, not just in the climate change uh, uh, conference uh, context. And at the Summit of the Americas next week, there's an opportunity to highlight shared priorities and accelerate regional action related to uh, climate impacts and emissions reduction, as well as adaptation. And at the same time, we're seeing a lot of um, accelerated work on things like extended um, marine protected areas, as mentioned, like CMAR, uh, and other opportunities to build on ocean conservation efforts. So we're seeing the, that discussion, I think, importantly come into, uh, into stark relief and maybe even center stage in some of these other contexts. And, and they should be there. And as they continue to be a part of the conversation, I think diversity of responses will also follow. Yeah, let me uh, add to that. I think uh, what you're going to see is a consistency of, of theme from state and from NOAA in, in terms of what we see as real opportunities. Uh, I would say on the opportunities front, um, internationally, we've got activities like the UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development that right now has identified um, a set of 10 challenges. That's, that's an open call for engaging globally. It provides a forum. The decade is not a funding mechanism, but it really is an excellent collaboration tool. I also want to add uh, to Maxine's comments with respect to what this administration is doing. And we've seen any number of uh, directives as well as investments uh, and new program developments associated with tackling the climate crisis. I see that as a real opportunity. Uh, and it addresses the full spectrum of risks in terms of climate risks associated with flood, drought, but also uh, health-related uh, and environmentally-related challenges. And, and it's manifesting largely in domestic programs that have a sort of transportability, if you will. So by doubling our offshore wind production and deploying 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, we are demonstrating capability to the world to obviously mitigate our carbon emissions, but also uh, help provide new technological solutions that could be used elsewhere. 
the America the Beautiful initiative, the other 30 by 30, where we're going to conserve 30% of our lands and waters by 2030, is also a very important component in the context of the value associated with protecting our and conserving our lands. Um, and that gets into the whole question of ecosystem services. I think that's another really uh, interesting opportunity, valuable opportunity. Uh, this plays in the form of coastal protection, uh, a number of carbon sequestration and storage activities, um, as well as the protection and restoration of ecosystems through development of MPAs. Uh, the one really interesting thing on that is just recently the administration put out a number of efforts associated with really quantifying and assessing the natural capital associated with areas like marine protected areas and starting to get to a place where we can quantitatively define how these solutions are impacting. The question alluded to challenges as well. And yes, there are many challenges. I think one of the most important ones is our ability as technocrats uh, largely to uh, get much more adept at, scientific, at communicating some of the scientifically sound findings uh, in plain language. Uh, we can assume people have an understanding of the implicit consequences of things like sea level rise and ocean acidification, but more and more we learn that uh, those are not concepts that are easily translatable to lives, livelihoods, and quality of life. And so it's incumbent on us, and it's a real challenge, I think, to make sure we translate technical capabilities and information and programmatic activities, uh, as we have both just discussed, in terms of what the ultimate value will be. Again, I go back to Prime Minister Bainimarama, Marama, who basically said, this all sounds good, but in the end, what can I take back to the citizens of Fiji in terms of how their lives are gonna change? So it's incumbent on us to determine that whole spectrum from scientific activity to policy development to outcomes and consequences for the public. Great, thank you. And so build, building off of um, that, that notion of figuring out ways that we can, we can um, make, make the crisis uh, and, the, and the problems associated with climate change relative to, to uh, people and communities. Um, it, it strikes me that one of, one of the potential problems or challenges with that is, is that um, I think many people perceive that we don't have enough information yet, that, that it's not, it's not certain or that we don't know enough about it to be responsive and to take action. So in, in, in your collective es estimation, uh, do we have enough information to, to take solid and concrete actions moving forward? Or are there key pieces of information that we don't yet have that we, we really should be prioritizing as, as a sort of collective set of nations in the Pacific? Yeah, thank you. So Bryce, the answer is yes and yes. We do have enough action, uh, information to take action. And yes, we need more information and knowledge. Um, so obviously, uh, you can look at uh, any number of measures of effectiveness. The skill of our predictions and projections is, is getting much, much better. Our ability to measure uh, things like uh, global average temperature, carbon dioxide concentration uh, is really quite good. Uh, can it be better? Yes, of course it can be better. And one of the, in general, the area where we uh, need to see improvement is the ability to what modelers call downscale, take those uh, global phenomena, those global observations, uh, those overarching uh, characterizations of impact and translate them to what does it mean in my area? What does it mean in, in, on my coastline? 
we're, we're seeing and monitoring extreme impacts from climate change. Uh, we're looking at the full spectrum of impacts very well from living marine resources to atmospheric interactions to um, impacts on infrastructure, for example, with a, a huge array of advanced sensors and methods. Um, one of the things where we can do more, I think, is in the social science arena, uh, where we need to understand uh, behavioral sciences, decision sciences, economic sciences, and how they intersect. I, I am delighted to say in the U.S. federal government right now, there are extraordinary discussions happening across agencies. In my own agency, we have a senior climate council at NOAA, where we've begun to, uh, an active dialogue with the U.S. Department of Treasury. That's never happened before. We've never had those kinds of discussions. So I think more of that kind of dialogue will be helpful. The other area where I'd say there's a lot we can do is in the uh, co-development of products and services with traditionally underserved, vulnerable communities um, and incorporating traditional knowledge uh, into our scientific tools. So um, I would simply add one more uh, point about do we have enough knowledge, you have to consider the risks of not acting with the knowledge that we have right now. And I am firmly convinced it's, it's like it's like your own personal finances. Do you have enough knowledge to know where to invest your money? You're never going to have perfect knowledge. You're never going to have all of the answers, but you have to make some decisions about where to invest and how to invest. And I firmly believe that we've got enough knowledge now to make those decisions in the programs, many of which Maxine already alluded to. Just the last final comment that there are some specific areas where I believe we need to focus additional efforts to gain new knowledge. One is on the climate, the impact of climate on fisheries and, and marine resources in general. Another is in the Arctic. Uh, we've talked a lot about investment in the Arctic. I think there's more that we can do right now. And the third, I would say, is in marine carbon dioxide removal strategies, which has been a topic of discussion for some time. I think there's plenty more we can do in those areas. Thanks. I th thanks, Dr. Spinrad. I, I couldn't agree with you more on all that you've said, but certainly the last the last few items that you've identified as as, as frontier uh, issues. I mean, obviously the impacts themselves are happening, and so those aren't necessarily new. But the opportunities um, that we need to explore and the curiosities, certainly around marine carbon dioxide removal, for example, are ones that are um, unknown uncertainties that may may have have promise and may have perils and we have to understand all of those things in order to, to deploy them effectively. I'll sort of um, just again um, endorse everything you've said and just maybe focus on one element of it, which is a part of the prepare plan that I mentioned earlier, which is the President's Emergency Plan for Adaptation and Resilience and, and suggest that a lot of what we're doing there is trying to identify risks and vulnerabilities that are um, that are that we're able to respond to um, uh, if we have early warning, right? So these early warning systems that are so critically important that it, and know it is so key to, uh, key to developing, um, they really can save lives and, and assets. And we know that um, they are worth at least 10 times their cost. So just 24 hours warning of a coming storm, for example, or, or heat wave can cut the ensuing damage by 30%. But we also know at this point that one third of the global population does not have access to or capacity to use those early warning um, and, and climate information systems. And so reducing the, the, the sort of the, the quality of, of unknowns and the quantity of unknowns can actually uh, lead to much better outcomes. Again, um, 10x in some cases, and that's in terms of, of, of lives 
livelihoods and um, an actual uh, cost of, of resources that are, are lost as a result of those um, unprepared communities um, and the impacts of, of, of storms, for example. So the big, the big uh, um, uh, known is that we have a crisis. It's an ocean and climate crisis. Um, there are a number of unknowns with respect to how they, it will manifest on the ground, but there are opportunities to reduce that at, at scales that we can be um, quite excited about in terms of, of the support that we provide other countries. Um, we also know that this kind of work in terms of delivery of, of early warning and climate information systems has the ability to build capacity over um, this generation and future generations. Uh, adaptation professionals that we could be training up to help um, people make the choices about where they live, what jobs they have, how they can protect their families from, from climate change, access to that scientific information, to those tools that come from research um, that we are co-creating, co-developing are also key for communities to effectively, uh, equitably and sustainably tackle both, both of these crises. Great, and that, that actually perfectly leads into the next question that I had, which was um, related to um, issues of, of equity. So, so especially in the Pacific, there, there's a very rich and diverse set of human communities. Um, and at the same time, there, there, are, there are huge economic disparities across uh, nations and, and, and human communities. But at the same time, um, climate change affects us all <laughs> in pretty much the same way. So how, how do we make um, the science uh, that we do, the monitoring that we do, the conservation actions that we take, how, how do we make those as, as inclusive and equitable as possible so that we're, we're, um, we're floating all, all boats, as it were? Yeah, this is, um, uh, I would say, just a, um, a, a, an important guiding question throughout the uh, administration um, uh, and as a priority, both in terms of understanding how we can uh, do better at equity and inclusivity across the, the US government and the work that we do and the, and the partners that we uh, seek um, and environmental justice in particular, certainly manifesting in the, so much of the domestic conversation that we're having and is really uh, starting to inform the international conversation as well. And so I'll just say, just sort of underscore that this is a um, both a, a, a sort of a North Star as well as a pathway and we're approaching it as such. Um, in terms of some of the things that we see that will mean different outcomes, we're already seeing, for example, relationships with um, tribal and indigenous communities being uh, sort of at the, at the leading edge in this work. Uh, coordination and meaningful consultation with tribal nations is, um, is a mandate for us. And we've been able to build on that with some exciting partnerships that have not only meant um, sort of different ways of understanding the science, um, the knowledge holders that we seek to, uh, to partner with, and support, um, but also the kinds of management uh, techniques and um, expertise that help us do better at the work that we're doing. So as mentioned at our ocean conference in Palau, we announced a suite of indigenous led initiatives, including the potential designation of three new national uh, marine sanctuaries, the establishment of the Northern Bering Sea Climate Resilience uh, Area, and a memorandum of understanding with the Republic of Palau to collaborate on and strengthen the conservation management and engagement of marine protected areas in the Pacific Islands region. I think it's important to understand that uh, in that context, um, uh, this is a this is a, a, a opportunity for for shared learning. Uh, our understanding of sustainable management and protection um, has uh, maybe a, a different um, intonation than it does in, in Palau and in the Pacific and among Pacific Islanders. And being able to speak um, in a in a similar language and harmony is really going to be important. And so, as we build these relationships, again, there's learning as to what the possibilities are for that kind of 
the management that we seek and the end result that we seek, which is a combination of both protection and productivity in a way that sustains the islands and the island communities as one example. I'll also just identify a, another example, which is responsive to concerns um, that we see uh, with respect to the disproportionate impact of a warmer world on women and girls. And I will here just to discuss the sort of first ever US national strategy on gender equity and um, equality. And so um, we included a section on climate uh, and that, among other things, and recognize the outsized impact of the climate crisis on women and girls. And it, it clearly sort of states um, that, uh, that not only is there a vulnerability there, but there's an opportunity for important leadership that we miss out on when we don't engage, um, when we don't include climate in, in these, uh, um, these spaces. Uh, when climate solutions aren't advanced at all levels of government and beyond. So um, that's a key one for us. And then I would just also mention our one health approach in our bureau, which is seeking to understand how overburdened communities are being impacted uh, in their environment um, at the coastline, um, but also pollution impacts that tend to affect health outcomes, which in themselves can affect livelihoods quite significantly. So this is one of those um, areas that has a, sort of a, a broad reach but a lot of possibility for response as a result. And it's critically important, again, because the ways of knowing, uh, the opportunities for management uh, and the diversities of, of opportunities in those management, uh, management um, uh, pathways uh, are things that we haven't been able to take as much uh, um, advantage of in terms of incorporating into our decision-making and ultimately our planning and preparedness. Yeah, I'll add, um, I won't, I won't uh, harp on the co-production issue. I've already talked about that, but I will simply Put it back into this as a key element in uh, inclusivity that it, it the development of products and services the development of capacity building has got to be from the start a dialogue not a we'll send it over the transom so you've got what you need kind of solution let me also uh, share with you a personal perspective one of the things that noaa has responsibility for is the national weather service and we have 122 weather forecast offices around the country um the interesting thing is if you go from one WFO, as we call them, to the next, you'll see the operational activity is pretty much the same. I, it, it's almost cookie cutter. You've got the, the uh, forecasters screens looking at uh, products and services coming in. But the interesting thing is we have worked hard in NOAA to make sure that the, um, the personnel, the forecasters, the scientific officers uh, actually have a per personal familiarity. They obviously all live in the neighborhoods but they do more than live. They're engaged with the communities. They know the culture of the communities. They know the values of the communities. And this translates to an extraordinarily improved product in terms of knowing that a particular event is important to this community. So let's put an extra effort on the forecast supporting that event. So it's an object lesson in terms of engagement. Um, I would say the Involvement of people on scene in a sustained way is an important aspect of the inclusivity. Uh, we are trying to do that in a variety of ways, but certainly trying to build that concept of operations into how we work across cultures, countries, and stakeholders uh, is critical. As just one example here at NOAA, one of the things we've done is we've brought on a permanent uh, position in a senior advisory role uh, uh, a fellow named Zach Penny, who happens to be a, a PhD in, in fishery science uh, and is a member of the Nez Perce tribe, specifically to work on tribal engagement issues. Um, 
The downside is you tend to say, okay, Zach will solve that. And as long as we're careful to say that the role of this individual is ensure we build a culture within our own organization of sustained engagement, we will have succeeded. So people are part of the solution. The other part is tools. And one of the exciting things going on in the administration right now is the development of a variety of different tools around EJ. How are we doing? So quantitative assessments of if you're building this program, have you adequately addressed the issues of environmental justice? And I would say the same is true of, uh, of engagement and inclusivity, that you have to have ways of assessing how you are doing. It can't just be, hey, we took a trip to an underserved area or this vulnerable community got a phone call from us. There have to be specific measurable outcomes and outputs that we can use to determine whether we're making progress in conservation research and policy with across cultures, countries, and stakeholders. Thank you for that. Um, you both mentioned fisheries um, at multiple points in, in your talks. And as, as a fisheries scientist myself, that um, there, there's a big, big buzzword um, flush around the notion of climate ready fisheries. And um, it's talked about a lot. It's talked about in federal and state fisheries management. It's talked about in nonprofits that are focused in fisheries. But in my experience, um, it's when you try and dig in a little bit into what that means, it's, it's, it means something different to lots of different people. And, and there's a lot of different folks that really don't really know what it means. So if we step, step back from that and think about it in the context of really it's about resilience, how, how, how can we... Um, within and across nations, how can we foster economic and ecological resilience, whatever that means, uh, in, in the face of, of climate change? Um, so I'm a technocrat, um, and I will tell you that I think part of the solution is having the best information that you can, which is I, why I always talk about uh, our products, not just in NOAA, but across the federal government, as environmental intelligence. And so in the same way, I could take your question and say, how do we tell the agricultural community with where they need to go and what they need to do? Um, and for us, it, it's gonna translate to how are we doing on subseasonal to seasonal forecasting? How are our annual, interannual, decadal uh, projections uh, gaining more skill? What observations do we need? But, but that's all predicated on knowing what are the questions that are being asked. So the first thing I would say in the context of, of your question, Bryce, is what is it that people need to know? If it's a subsistence fishing community that wants to know, are we still going to have this particular resource five, 10, 20 years from now? that can translate to a very specific scientific question, a study, and we can develop some skill and say within a range of expected errors, this is what you can expect in a few years. We're looking at that right now in the Gulf of Maine with respect to the lobster uh, fishery. Uh, as, as I think many people on, on this call know, there is a uh, very serious concern associated with sustaining the lobstering industry in New England, and at the same time ensuring that the drastically diminished North Atlantic right whale populations are not further diminished by activities associated with that fishing activity. Boy, wouldn't it be valuable if we could turn around and say, with high degree of skill, 
we know that this is what's going to happen to the lobster populations in five years, 10 years. And if we had, if we had faith in that particular forecast, we could then start helping develop the economic solutions based on that fishery that at the same time would ensure the growth and sustainability and viability of the North Atlantic right whale populations. So I really believe scientific solutions are at the heart as long as they are well constrained by the very specific definition of requirements, in this case, associated with the fishing community. And, and I should uh, close simply by saying, it's not a new issue. This is something we've been addressing for some time. We've had a climate and fisheries initiative going on for some time. The FOSI program has been conducted in the Gulf of Alaska uh, for uh, over a decade now, looking at the physical implicate, the implications of physical effects from climate change on the biogeography of key commercial species. So um, this has been ongoing. It's got to be framed in the context of what exactly are the questions we're trying to answer. Yeah, I'll, just a, a quick addendum, which is just to sort of acknowledge that, uh, you know, what you're sharing, Bryce, in that there are sort of different ways, the different views of the cathedral, if you will, the different ways of understanding what climate ready means. And ultimately, one of the, the some of the most difficult elements of this is that there is maybe an acknowledgement that some fisheries are, can't be climate ready, that they, they, there's so much movement, um, in, in other words, or that there's some that we're going to see changes. In other words, that the main may not complete loss, but certainly significant shifts. And we're thinking about that certainly in our relationships, especially in the Pacific, because what does that mean if you are a country that relies significantly on your, your fisheries? Um, obviously, we're, we are one as well, but the degree to which we're one, the percentage of our GDP is um, is not the same as other countries. Um, when you when you think about the Pacific Islands, for example, and the impacts of those the movement of those fisheries, what what that looks like, and so there there is at the same time. I think with all of the uh, the climate impact challenges that we're looking at, uh, a need to understand how we um, uh, secure or make resilient the the economy writ large. Right? What does it look like to diversify an economy that is um, uh, primarily dependent on fish on fishing and fisheries, uh, and will be? For, for some time, uh, but looking at ways to make it more resilient, especially when we know that external shocks um, can happen that can be so absolute. And we just saw that with, with respect to, to COVID-19. We see that there are examples of when, you know, you have a year over year decimate one, one third of your economy, say if it's blue economy and tourism related, for example, and we understand that those kinds of impacts and those kinds of external shocks are going to be um, likely more frequent with the twin crises of, of the ocean and, and, and biodiversity. Uh, biodiversity, excuse me, and, and climate crises um, as well. And so um, these are, th there isn't a, a ready answer at this point. And again, these things will look different for different countries, but those are the kinds of relationships that, that we're trying to, um, and conversations we're trying to have in our bilateral relationships and relationships with the region, generally speaking, to both address near-term impacts, but also look at the horizon um, to understand how that's going to affect the fishery writ, writ large and, of course, the, the economies of these countries. That's great. Thank you. And I, I'll note that you know, the, the United States has a mechanism for, for federal declared federal fisheries disasters uh, to, to, to compensate communities that, that have been impacted um, by, by fisheries disasters of, of many flavors. But um, it, if you look at the, the trends in those Disaster declarations over time they're they're increasing dramatically, and also the nature of those those uh, disasters is 
predominantly in, uh, in the last decade been climate related. So it's, it is, I, I, I totally hear the, the message regarding improving our forecasting and, and understanding responses uh, because we're already, pay, at least in the U.S., we're paying a lot for these disasters. And, and, and if we can predict them and avoid them, um, there, there's a savings there, uh, both in terms of culturally as well as monetarily, honestly. Uh, the last question I had, and then we'll, um, we, I think we'll have enough time to jump over to some of the audience questions. So again, if you're in the audience and you have a question, please feel free to drop it in the Q&A. Um, well, while you have a chance to do that, we'll, we'll visit this last question, which is um, thinking into the future, uh, are there new monitoring programs, new policy frameworks that, that you envision that we need in order to put together a, a coordinated response to, to uh, ocean and climate change? Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm happy to jump right in. Um, I, I think between Maxine and me, you've heard allusions to a number of these number of programs. Uh, Maxine talked about PREPARE, for example, which is just starting up. Um, I, I, and I talked about UN Decade, which we're 20% of the way into the decade, I might point out. Uh, those are examples, but we, we should also point out that there are there's still lots of um, playing area on the field for uh, different agreements, different approaches. Uh, Maxine alluded to some of the illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing concerns, IUU fishing. That is a hot issue. It, I, I saw it came up in some reference in the uh, in one of the questions that's been posted already. There, there's a lot of work to be done there, I believe. Uh, in a general sense, we still have many of the issues associated with management of the commons. Um, there's a lot of attention right now. It's not so much a climate issue per se, although one could argue there is a role for it in things like manufacturing and production of climate-related mitigation technology, and that is deep sea mining. Um, and so on and on the list goes, there's need for, I believe, uh, overall global consideration of aquaculture, uh, how we build out those kinds of capabilities. Um, and then there's the whole issue of uh, coastal zone management, which is dealt with on a, uh, a nation specific basis, but clearly we're now in a place where we've got to look at what our neighbors are doing with respect to coastal zone management as it may or may not impact our own activities. And, and by our, I mean each individual coastal state around the world. So I think there's ample opportunity for more programs, more policies, uh, uh, and certainly more agreements. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll echo that and just and say, um, you know, we, we are uh, so incredibly focused on IU fishing uh, as an example of the State Department because uh, it's it's like the climate ocean crisis. It's it's it seems like one isolated issue, but it really implicates so many elements of of um, not just criminal activity and you know just and and forced in terms of forced labor associated with illicit drug trafficking. Often there's so many things that are sort of tied up into that activity, but it has such an outsized impact on uh, livelihoods, um, on those fisher folk who are trying to, to make a, an honest living. Um, it is very much about maritime security writ large, and it's becoming a more of a geopolitical uh, concern for, for a number of reasons. And so we have to be sort of understanding that these issues that have seen, you know, 
far offshore and don't affect our lives actually do affect our plates, our um, economies, and certainly our understanding of what it means to be a good citizen and support the you know good citizens globally. And so we are, uh, I think, trying to allow for the oceans to be something relevant to to each individual, no matter where they are, either in the coast or in, or in the middle of our country and our other countries. Um, we're also hoping to reorient in terms of climate and our understanding about whether or not that's relevant to the rest of even the department itself. And so some of the key work that's happened at the State Department, which I think is, is indication uh, of the kinds of changes we need is to, is the, is the sort of um, the climate mainstreaming throughout the, the agency itself, right? And to see that these issues around, for example, um, illegal activities uh, are, are actually related to the, to the climate crisis, our understanding of human rights and various other elements of the department that seems to be, has since been cordoned off from these questions around the oceans and climate are now being engaged to understand the impacts that uh, it has on them, but also the opportunity for solution making that they are, are able to deploy in their, in their specific work. So that I think is really exciting um, in addition to the specific efforts that reflect the priorities of, our, of the administration. And priorities can be stated, but they're, when they're funded, when there are resources attached to it, that is an, uh, a priority that's um, clearly uh, being uh, um, uh, utilized in, in, in a way that's uh, consistent with the goals of this, of this uh, administration. Wonderful. And, and um, let's, let's uh, address the, in the Q&A Erica's question, because it feeds off of, of uh, what was just being discussed. Erica states, um, MPA compliance is a challenge in many developing countries, especially when there are climate vulnerable local communities that depend on fisheries inside the MPAs for their livelihoods. Unfortunately, many times those local communities are not adequately consulted during the creation of MPAs, which often leads to IUU fishing. Um, how can the U.S. help developing countries conduct better MPA design and ensure adequate funding for compliance and enforcement? I'll, I'll be glad to jump right in and start, and uh, I'll harken right back to um, many of the discussions, but one session in particular in Palau, which was a best practices session that I moderated, best practices on MPA. So I think part of it is uh, taking advantage of this uh, growing set of international discussions and dialogues, whether it's our oceans or the UN Ocean Conference or the COPS uh, as venues for having the information exchange, uh, which is a form of capacity building as well. That's one piece. Uh, some of the things that I alluded to, some of the programs in various federal agencies, uh, USAID notably, uh, some here at NOAA, State Department sponsored efforts uh, involve uh, exchange of personnel and information. So we have a regular series of those kinds of dialogues where we can take the technological and policy uh, developments that we are seeing and, and using and uh, share them with our colleagues. Not to say that we have all of the answers, but we can do the same thing with some of our other colleagues. There, that At that panel I was in, uh, or that I moderated, for example, we had a representative from Costa Rica, who, who Costa Rica has done some extraordinary things uh, in the MPA arena. And so their sharing of their best practices was a, a good tool there. But also, two other things. Let's not lose sight of the role that philanthropy and NGOs play in this arena. Um, I have had many discussions with a variety of different uh, NGOs who have the flexibility and the resources to facilitate development of pilot programs, development of dialogues, and it's incumbent on us as government folks to uh, share with them how we can collaborate and uh, commingle, not illegally, commingle our resources in a way that can most best affect change. The other um, 
tool, I think we have in the toolbox is professional society. So groups like the American Society of Adaptation Professionals has some uh, very, uh, uh, some extraordinary people and some real unique perspectives uh, that they can certainly share. Yes, it is the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, but the lessons learned and capabilities that they represent are broadly applicable. So I think there's a role for professional societies. I think there's a role for government. I think there's a role for uh, philanthropy as well in the solution. Thanks, Dr. Spinrad. I think you've covered <laughs> uh, so much of this. I completely agree, and um, and 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 might just uh, uh, leave it there and uh, only add that that there is an opportunity as well for us to partner. Um, uh, in particular, we see there's some good collaborations with respect to um, supporting at least the the uh, heading off of, of IU fishing from from distant water fleets by engaging our coast guards. That's something that we've had a, a pretty healthy conversation with uh, within the government uh, across NOAA, across Coast Guard, across state to understand how we can work with other countries to uh, allow for them to have a more robust response when it is happening. But it is key to, to be able to ensure that uh, we limit its occurrence in, in the first place and the MPA design may be a good way to, 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 do, to do that. So just really want to sort of underscore what's been said. Great, thank you. Um, Tom made more of a statement than a question in the chat, so I'll try and turn it into a question. Um, uh, the adaptation that we've talked about, that's, that's necessary and needed moving forward to respond to climate change uh, for, for our ecological systems as well as our human communities, uh, comes at a cost, like financially comes at a cost and probably a very high one. Um, how, how do we engage the different countries in, in getting them to support financially, economically, or otherwise, um, those efforts at, at building resilience and, and adaptation? And it, is there room uh, to negotiate that, that burden of responsibility, financial or otherwise, based on those countries that are more or less um, the producers of, of the of the carbon uh, of the greenhouse gases that are that are causing the issue. Yeah. So, so and thanks for that question. That question. I think this is incredibly important. And I will say um, that uh, we do need serious money um, for adaptation and res and resilience. And we, as mentioned earlier, we know that that um, that investment can be ten x in terms of the cost saved. So it's also just sort of smart money. Um, we also need um, to to walk and chew gum, if you will. We need to do both things. We need to be able to mitigate uh, aggressively, and that's been certainly when I was uh, working with this the special presidential envoy for climate. Uh, a big emphasis was really uh, looking at how do we draw down emissions so that we don't have to do as much adaptation. Obviously, we're not going to see the the results of that uh, investment in the you know in terms of the work and the sort of uh, the, the the dogged efforts to to get our emissions down. The 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 result of that we may not appreciate or be able to benefit from for a little while, but it certainly will help us with that um, the final tab in terms of how much it's going to cost countries to adapt. Um, we do have and we've and I to, to quote our, our special presidential envoy as well we have a responsibility to help countries do that um, and uh, uh, we do need to be able to uh, to meet that to meet the moment to meet that support in a um, an effective and sustainable way we do have domestic headwinds one thing I mean uh, to be perfectly transparent I, I am a, an academic 
and I've come from um, from universities. And I've thought a lot about these questions and uh, and have uh, I think you know come up with some good answers. The problem we have, as always, is that at the State Department in particular, we represent the U.S. government's position as it is now, <laughs> not as we would like it to be, um, or as it might be in the future. And I think we would be uh, it, it would be important for us to to emphasize that. Um, not the entire country isn't where this administration is um, in terms of where we'd like to be as a global citizen. And in fact, uh, and as someone who's also sort of, you know, had my share of, um, of letters to the editor and various other things as a, as a, as a citizen, right, as a lay person, um, I think the, the audience matters. And so you're, this particular audience in terms of understanding that we do have a responsibility to support um, adaptation in our country, most, most vulnerable community, communities in other countries, it's there, it's real. Um, we're not the, necessarily the audience um, and certainly the State Department, it can only do as much as we can deliver. We can only promise what we can deliver. And what has been abundantly clear is that in these conferences like Glasgow, that disappointment that some may feel, even with all of the excellent things that have come out of these meetings, that disappointment some may feel is, is as much a, uh, a reflection as, of us being honest brokers. Here's what we can do um, based on where, where we are at this moment. So I'll, I'll offer that. <laughs> I'd, I'd just like to add one, one little uh, perspective, and that is that um, there's a little bit of the kindergartner's soccer game going on with respect to adaptation. So kindergartner soccer, if you've ever watched it, the ball moves on the court and or the field and everybody chases the ball. Uh, and so where do you go? It, it, assuming that um, there is uh, an opportunity to make investments. And, and I'm bringing this up because there are some very effective groups that are trying to define what are the priorities for investment, one of which would be like uh, a group like the Local 2030 Islands Network. Um, and many of the adaptation issues, of course, are associated with sea level rise, which means that the what we used to call the small island developing states and we now call the large ocean uh, states uh, are the ones who are defining what some of the priorities for investment uh, should be. Um, and so there are some very effective groups. I bring up Local 2030 Islands as one example, because otherwise we are like the kindergartners playing soccer. We run around the field trying to figure out, well, where do we put our time, our effort, our expertise, or our resources? And I think, I think that's an important part of the solution, clearly building on the kind of uh, um, focused uh, attention and, and investments that uh, Maxine alluded to as well. Perfect. Well, that's um, an excellent uh, question to end on. Um, it's kind of forward looking. And, and, and uh, so uh, we appreciate your time, both of you, uh, and, and uh, all of your, your um, perspectives. Uh, and uh, I, hopefully the audience will um, have gotten quite a bit out of these, these uh, two presentations in the roundtable. So thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.